series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest Rathbone's Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time about the future of our changing world. Today we're focusing on the future of leadership with economist and former White House presidential advisor Pippa Malgram. Her latest book, The Leadership Lab, argues that the old rules of successful leadership no longer work. We need to broaden our vision of what leadership can be and should look like and what opportunities it can take on and also the threats that it faces in the 21st century. Pippa, welcome. Pleasure to have you here today. Ah, thank you. Um, over the last few years, there's been enormous crisis in leadership. Of course, we immediately think of political leadership, but all sorts of other leadership too. When we look at what's happened, uh, for example, in the Catholic Church, look at the leadership in, in the car industry, where there's been a huge crisis of confidence as well, uh, with things like the auto emission scandals. Is this something that's particular to the 21st century or was it always thus? Well, it does feel as though there's more of it happening across a wider array of different uh, categories of the of the world economy. As you say, it's in the religious community, it's in community sectors, it's politics, it's business. Whatever the result is, the bottom line is people are very unhappy with it <laughs> and they want their leaders to perform better. And so part of the reason I wrote the book with my co-author, um, Chris Lewis, is because we spent a lot of time advising leaders, business leaders, political leaders, and we could we could hear why they were missing it, why they were not understanding how their actions would be interpreted very badly by the public. So we thought we need to write a book about this. And so what was it that you discovered? What were those trends? Well, a few things. Number one, in the 20th century, which is the age bracket of most leaders today, they were trained to be highly analytical. So they're very good at looking at numbers. And they're not very good at the parenthetical, which is the ability to look across the landscape and consider the qualitative things. In other words, they can measure the math, but they can't get a grip on the mood. And this is a very important ability, and it's part of why they miss so much. And they make decisions that seem logical and rational to them and absurd to the general public. Is that the way that things used to be measured? Are, we, are, we, are they using kind of macroeconomic models that are no longer in date? Well, that's also part of it is what we what the military calls situational awareness. It's simply being aware of what's happening around you. But because leaders, as they get promoted, and I learned this working in the White House and around politics for many years, the higher you go, it's true in business as well, the fewer people you have around you and you have less time. So you don't seek new opinions. You just stick with the people you know. And what this means is it's very easy to get out of touch with reality. And so, for example, when I hear CEOs say, all the jobs are moving to China, I immediately know this is a person who's totally disconnected from reality because, in fact, during certainly the last five years, but really the last decade, uh, the jobs have been moving from China to the West because the wages have gone up so much in China and their quality control has fallen. So there's a reversal of a trend. So this is one of the key things. We have many leaders who are operating on an assumption that's literally 10 years out of date. And nobody has been there to challenge to them. To say, excuse me, but actually <laughs> it's a little different than you think. Mm. They're also living in a world where they've got an awful lot of information around them, as, as do all of us. And often our creative uh, processes are interrupted by that 
constant pinging from a smartphone. Does that make an impact? It does. And we spent a whole chapter on just uh, this aspect, not just we have a separate chapter on technology, but just on the behavioral issues. So, for example, it's very easy to assume that everyone is much more connected electronically and therefore there must be more conversations happening. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. We're having less and less conversation, less and less real exchange of views and feelings, but more and more interconnectedness. And in fact, a sense of being deeply overwhelmed by all this stuff going on. Uh, and what happens to the brain as you keep pinging it, and in fact, all of these apps and things are designed, like gambling, uh, you know, algorithms are used to get you hooked on the dopamine hit, but it doesn't necessarily leave you better informed. And in fact, um, Chris, my co-author, wrote a book called Too Fast to Think, and that was a core theme of the book, is that leaders have to take more time to think because otherwise they have no creativity. They're just in response and sort of fight flight mode all the time. And uh, you know, Einstein said creativity is the residue of time wasted. How often now do we just waste time thinking about things? And yet we have the most complex problems in history that require original thinking. So we really need to adapt. Uh, yeah, completely. So it's funny, like for example, when do people come up with their most creative ideas? It's usually when they're not at work, when they're not trying. Lying on a beach somewhere. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, in the shower, they're washing the dishes, and they go, oh my God, I just, now I have the solution. Yet, what do we do when we're faced with a really serious problem? We hold more meetings, we spend more time in the office. And so we do the opposite of what's required to arrive at a truly creative solution. And that's what we found a lot of our leaders couldn't pull into the 21st century, give people some space. Uh, because they're like, no, 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 we need more meetings, you know? <laughs> I, uh, one thing that I was really uh, interested in in the book, you talk about, uh, I knew until very recently you were an advisor to the mm. British government um, uh, on trade and indeed on Brexit. When the Brexit vote was taken, uh, David Cameron didn't have a speech prepared for a leave vote. Now, an awful lot of people will think wrong. that was extraordinary. Well, it is. It's extraordinary regardless of your opinion about Brexit the hubris of assuming that they would know exactly how that vote would go. And I know because I was spending a lot of time outside of London at that time, and my sense was very strong that the country was definitely going to vote out. And I talked to some of the people in cabinet office at that time, and they said, don't be ridiculous. And this is one of the things we talk about in the leadership lab, is this sense of certainty is the problem. It's this belief also that you're so all-knowing that you can predict the future, but nobody can predict the future. So it's much smarter to be focused on preparedness for a range of possible futures, including ones that may seem absurd to you. But mentally, it's a good exercise to think about the possibility that you could be wrong. And we get into an interesting topic in the book, which is really our core theme, diversity of thinking, that it's not enough to have diversity of people on your team, although that's very helpful and a very uh, laudable thing that we need to do. But diversity of thinking, and I know this because I experienced, I wrote a, an article a year before Trump was elected for the Evening Standard saying, you know, this guy has a bad haircut. He's not worth what he says he's worth. He's divorced. Da, da, da. This makes him an aspirational figure for many Americans. And therefore, we have to understand there's a real possibility that he could win. And people were like, are you completely insane? And I'm like, I'm just saying there's a possibility here. I'm not condoning it. I'm not. And it's the same with Brexit. And I think 
what I'm asking for in the book here is saying people need to exercise their imagination more. And there's a wonderful quote by Mark Twain, which is, the eyes cannot see clearly if the imagination is out of focus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big problem with leadership. Their imagination is out of focus. I want to come back and talk a bit more about diversity later, but let's talk about the decline of trust in leadership. The public are seeing their political leaders not being held account very often for false claims, thinking about Brexit. Sure. Um, also thinking about Donald Trump and this idea that uh, you can call any news fake news if you don't like it. Uh, and a lot, a lot of people listening will understand that th they really worry that when you decide that somebody else, a leader, can choose what is and what isn't news, mm -hmm. you're eroding something very deep uh, within the kind of bedrock of what we consider to be democracy. The political process, many people feel, whatever side they're on, is letting them down. Is is this a new era? Do you think that this is here to stay? Well, we do write in the book about something that is new and perhaps driven by technology, which is a kind of quantum superpositioned world. What I mean by that is that you can be both right and wrong simultaneously. So for example, if Amazon ends up paying a tax bill of zero, and that just feels wrong, and everyone says, that's wrong, but Amazon's, but, but we totally in compliance with the law. So technically they're right, and they're wrong at the same time. And many issues are like this today, where right and wrong simultaneously. So who's correct? And what is a fact? What is not a fact? It comes back to actually feelings now are more important. And that may not be a good thing, but it is where society has gone. And people are saying, I don't care what the facts are. This is how I feel about something. And the tenure to people's feelings is where the breakdown starts to happen. Um, I think also, look, I've, I've spent my whole life working in public policy. I got my first job working uh, for Ronald Reagan on trade policy back in the mid-80s. And my father was the chief trade negotiator for the United States under Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. So I've grown up in this space. Bottom line is, we also have come to believe that data is somehow accurate. But in fact, it's the choice of the algorithm. It's the choice of the model. It gives you the result you want. So most of public policy is about picking the model that shows you the outcome that you want. That, and then you say that this is a fact, but is it really? You could have used a different approach as well. And so being more open to the possibility that different people see the reality in different ways. With all your experience and, and your father's experience too, mm. do you think that it's now that today people are more aware that there is a, a plethora of facts from which to choose and perhaps a generation ago they didn't and that that we were more accepting of whatever we were told by the government or by the state? Well, for sure. It's simply the fact that you have a phone in your pocket, a smartphone, which quite literally contains more computing power than was required to put a man on the moon. I mean, think about that, the computational capacity. So now, you know, students, teachers say, students aren't respectful anymore. Well, that's because the student actually has more information than the teacher does these days. Doctors say, people are not respectful of the medical profession because actually now the data is at your fingertips and it is often better than what the doctor can give you. So yes, this is a profound change in what we know. Now, is what we know genuinely correct? Or have we got a whole bunch of noise going on? That's another thing. Mm. And I think that maybe contributes 
to the hostility and the environment where I think people genuinely feel either you agree with me or you're an idiot or you're evil. And all of the conversations that are happening these days quickly lock down into that mode. So we're no longer having open possibility conversations. We're having a, here's my position, and if you don't agree, then you're a bad person. And, and that's not really getting us anywhere. Mm. We're also seeing employees putting pressure on the employer to meet their values. Yeah. It's a, a different kind of trust, perhaps. I mean, if we look at Google, um, whose staff uh, recently protested against you know, claims of sexual harassment, gender inequality, uh, etc. Do you think that that leadership is being held to account now in different ways? Is it going to lead to perhaps a new kind of leadership when uh, staff as well are asking to see their values reflected in the people who pay their wages? Absolutely. And again, technology is a huge driver of this because now we have ubiquitous collection of data. I mean, we give off data from the clothes we wear because there are now uh, sensors in the, in the seams of the clothes. I mean, the phone is giving away the data. What it gives you is an is a environment of radical transparency. And so what companies and their leaders haven't realized, pol- politicians haven't clocked, is how radically transparent their actions are to the public. I think individuals haven't clocked how radically transparent they are to the internet. I mean, the internet now knows more about you than you know about yourself, right? So in that environment, you can't fudge anymore. And this is where the values then come into play. So, you know, it's not a new concept. Peter Drucker, who's a great management guru, who was really writing from the late 1940s until he passed away, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, he always said, look, it's not enough to be profitable. You have to be profitable. Otherwise, you're dead. So beyond that, what is the social purpose that you fulfill? And that question has to be answered in a believable way because for businesses, for example, all the value of a brand comes from trust in what do you stand for. And frankly, it's exactly the same in politics. It's trust in what do you stand for. And so it's this belief that you can flip-flop around and not have any consequences. Well, no, in an era of radical transparency, everybody sees every slight deviation from what you said you were going to do. I wonder what you think if that applies to all sectors. I mean, it's very easy to see that it applies in a kind of a consumer-facing sector. You know, if you're if you're a Unilever or something, you know, people want to believe in your brand because they're making a choice in the supermarket aisles. But what about for banks? I mean, I know you've been a banker for a long time and, you know, really profit and bottom line are very important there. Does a social purpose matter in the financial sector? I think it does, absolutely. And yet, I'm not sure financial services people have really clocked Mm. this, really cottoned on to this. Part of the reason we're having all of the breakdown is because people feel that their social contract has changed. The social contract is there's always a deal between citizens and the state, right? I agree to abide by the law and the state agrees to provide a military welfare policy, et cetera. When we had the financial crisis, the most privileged people in society made some very bad bets that cost the entire society and caused people to have to retire later than expected, except a lower standard of living than they had expected. And what was the penalty for that event? 
they got written the biggest bailout check in modern history. In other words, we socialized the losses and privatized the gains. Now, you know, I'm a capitalist. I'm an American. I've worked in Republican administrations. So I've been, I think capitalism is the right system. But that is not capitalism, right? It's like Catholicism doesn't really work if you don't have sin, right? In capitalism, if you fail, you're supposed to get chucked out. But we didn't do that. And that began the process of everyone saying, wait a minute. What is the system that I've signed up for? It isn't working the way I expected it to. And similarly, um, I would say, you know, a lot of people are focused on the, the gap between the high earning and low earning people, and that's widened dramatically. But again, I'm not sure that's so new in society. What is new is the elevator doors are broken. And by that, I mean, it used to be that if you were at the top and you screwed up, you had to go down. Well, the bailout meant, no, you get to stay. And if you were at the bottom and you worked hard, even though you had no money or no particular advantage, no nepotism, you could get to the top. I think now it's much harder to get to the top than it was for my father's generation or his parents' generation. And this is the problem that's causing people to have loss of trust. That's really fascinating. I wonder if you could tell us why you think that has changed, the ability to move, the, the, that, that, that sort of social mobility that, yeah. I mean, particularly in America, I mean, was basically the backbone of, of uh, America's success. Totally, totally. Well, you know, we look around and we see strange things. Like, wasn't it just only a couple of years ago that the entire incoming class, I think it was at Oxford, didn't have a single person uh, from a from an African background, no blacks, no one of color. You're like, what? How is this possible? And so you begin to realize there's something inherent in the structures and system. And there's a lot of focus these days on algorithms and are they biased? And the answer is yes. And so lots of people are building businesses on how to unbias those algorithms, which I think is a much needed thing. But it means people have lost trust in the system Indeed. if it's producing those outcomes. This is a very big question and not one that I'm sure that you've got a quick answer to, but, but where does that trust come from? How can leaders look to build it up, to rebuild trust? Well, uh, one aspect of trust is that it is a very personal thing. Um, it's not usually a general thing. It's about human contact. Uh, it's not about slogans and positions. It's about how do you actually behave. And the people around you spread the word about how you actually behave. And so any gap these days gets magnified immediately because we're in a social media world. And so I think this is one of the things of, we argue in the book, the authenticity of your position is everything. It's, the world will see very quickly if you say certain things, but your actions don't follow that up, if you're not consistent about that. Again, that's the radical transparency environment. And so this raises other questions, like business leaders, politicians, they want to say what the public wants to hear, yeah, but then that's not authentic. And the public really wants leadership, people who believe in what they're saying, and they want to be swayed over to that position if it's going to genuinely get us a better outcome. But this is not where we are. We live in a world where people are, are basically checking what is the appropriate thing I should say before I say it. And indeed, in a world where leaders may feel that they cannot admit 
to making mistakes. I mean, you talk about this in the book that, you know, if you're discussing a problem and you say, look, I'm not really sure of the way forward, which is every person's natural response occasionally, no matter how great a leader you are, uh, people feel they might get punished in the polls for that or indeed punished by their board if they're the CEO of a company. And actually, the, the, the either voters or, or shareholders might want to go with somebody who at least appears outwardly to be more certain, more right. Is, is that a danger yeah. for leaders? Um, well, it is. And it, it's an interesting issue because um, we're, we're often confusing um, competence and confidence. And this is also an issue particularly for women um, and, and for people who feel to be minorities in their workspace. They often are not brave enough to step up with their views, and so they're perceived as lacking confidence. And we have this tendency to promote people because they go, I know the answer, and they don't know the answer. Uh, and a lot of studies show, which we cite in the book, that men are much more inclined to say, I'm ready, I have a view, let me answer the question, when they're like 40 to 60% actually on top of the subject, whereas women tend to wait until they're 100% sure, and even then they hesitate. And so this business of we believe that confidence equals good leadership I think we found out that's not true. And this kind of, um, we jokingly call it the Jesus Christ model of leadership, which is, you know, I am the all-seeing, you know, you follow me. It's very much the Jack Welsh uh, mm. model of leadership. Yeah, from General Electric. From General Electric, um, who, by the way, drove the company into the ground. But leaving that aside, um, this is not working. So leadership used to be about the leader, and now it's so much more about the ship. Let's talk a bit more about diversity. There is an increasing focus, of course, on uh, diversity of people you know, across every sector. But we also need a diversity of thinking rather than just diversity in what a workforce or what a management board looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, I come back to the uber controversial issues of Brexit and Trump, um, the slowdown in China and and. I found people were like, don't be ridiculous. And it didn't matter how diverse the room was, <laughs> they were all certain. So it comes back to certainty is the origin of, of mediocrity. So they were certain about their views, they even were, though they came from or they appeared to come from a very diverse range of areas in, of, in the country. Yeah. And... and personal backgrounds, mm. et cetera. Nonetheless, a diversity of people, and we don't just talk about gender diversity. I mean, that's a big category just because of the numbers. But we also talk about diversity of, of income levels, diversity of educational background, uh, diversity of um, you know, ethnic, religious, every kind of diversity. You want to open the doors to a wide range of people. Uh, neuroplasticity diversity, you know, hiring people who are somewhere on the spectrum because they problem solve differently than others. Lots of companies are actually deliberately doing that these days. Occasionally people may think that diversity hiring is political correctness. It's done because it feels like it's socially the right thing to do. But just make the business case for it as well, because it's not just about it's not just about political correctness. It's actually a very sound business basis, isn't it? No, yeah, exactly. So McKinsey's done some fantastic work on this. The bottom line is you don't do diversity because it's nice or because it's just, but because it makes the performance of the organization go up by every metric. If you're a company in the profit sector, profits rise. I think McKinsey's numbers are something like over 30% improvement once you get more diversity. 
Uh, if you're in a nonprofit sector, the adhesion, the interest in the, the story of what you're doing goes dramatically up. So this is about performance. It's not about being nice. And there are certain leadership values and qualities that are deemed traditionally more masculine or more feminine. I appreciate this is a broad brush because they're obviously not the preserve of either. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that, about what they are and why that works? You know, why it is that a diverse workforce actually increases the bottom line? Yeah, so now I'm going to get into really tricky territory, uh, which we did in the book, which is to talk about the, not just the difference between men and women, but the masculine and the feminine. So imagine, uh, because I get asked to sit, for example, on boards, and, and I genuinely feel half the time what they're looking for is a man in a dress. They, they just literally want another guy, but they have to tick the box, okay, you're a woman. So, But if I bring to that table some of the values that are important to me, like compassion and empathy, uh, that might be seen as, oh, you know, that's not bottom line. You know, we're trying to make money here. Yeah, but guess what? When you focus purely on P&L or the profit and loss of a company and you make decisions based on the bottom line, you actually start to deteriorate the integrity of trust in the brand because where does trust in the brand come from? It comes from compassion for the customers, compassion and uh, empathy for the employees, the customers, for the community. So what we really need are leaders, whether they are men or women, who can play the entire keyboard of possibility, P&L at one end of the spectrum, or compassion and empathy at the other, but right now we have a lot of leaders who are only playing like chopsticks at one end of the piano keyboard instead of symphonies with the entire spectrum, knowing when is the right time to say compassion and empathy matter right now more than the immediate cost to our bottom line or vice versa. It's, a, it's about a balancing and a holistic view as opposed to just analytical, 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 no sense of what is the parenthetical. And can all of those, can that range, can that full piano keyboard be in one person? Or is it up to a leader to make sure they are surrounded by the people who have got those masculine and feminine qualities and that they are able to listen to all of them? Well, I think that is exactly right. That one, It's great if one person has some breadth and there are leaders who do have breadth and we need more of them. But even they they cannot be all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient. They can't think of every answer. And so they need to be surrounded by people who not only bring a different opinion, but are willing to voice it. And that's one thing I learned working in the White House. The hardest thing for leaders is they get surrounded by people who say, yes, sir, I agree, when in fact they don't. And so to be brave enough to say, you know, I don't think this is right. And it's particularly hard for young people. And the fact is young people do have incredibly well thought through valid views and are often more knowledgeable about what is the zeitgeist than anyone who's in their 50s and 60s. And yet, do we have the 56-year-old leader surrounding themselves with rooms of 20-year-olds? No, what we have are leaders who say, oh, these millennials, yeah, they're really tricky. In fact, that was one of the reasons we wrote the book. We had all these business leaders saying, my problem is I can't get these millennials to follow me. And I'm like, um, okay, I think there are reasons why this is happening. And maybe you should have a meeting where you bring all these millennials in and just listen. Just listen, because you'll hear things that your own imagination couldn't come up with. And is it the case that very often women in these management situations 
find it more difficult to get their voice heard. And by extension, millennial women, that the younger women are also finding it harder to put their points across and to be to be listened to. Well, younger people generally are finding it harder because they've grown up communicating on electronic platforms. They find speaking very hard. They'll do anything to avoid having to have a phone call with a client or a, or a constituent or whatever. Um, so it's partly that. But yes, definitely we know this is true from all these different studies, um, which we cite heavily in the book. The way to think about it, I I think, is um, how you hold meetings matters. Structure matters. Most of us like to hold meetings on the basis of whoever talks first and loudest wins. And so basically the blowhards get the stage and they win the points. But if we held meetings on the basis of everyone gets equal time, let's say five or 10 minutes for each person, it forces the quiet voices to step forward and say something, and it forces the blowhards to shut up. And actually, you get a very different outcome if you hold an equal time meeting. And it doesn't just benefit the women. It benefits anyone who's quiet. But quite often, it's the quiet ones, and I'm an introvert myself, the quiet introverts who've been mulling over something for a long time, and since nobody else has mentioned it, they're like, oh, I don't know if this is a really crazy idea. They almost need either permission or compulsion to actually state what they're thinking. And I do think we get better results when we do this. Pippa, you say you're an introvert, and I've known you for some time and interviewed (laughs) you before. You don't come across like that. Have you had to work yourself? I mean, you've spent a lot of time in places like the White House and indeed in Westminster where you you need to get your point across. Have you personally had to work quite hard to to make sure that you're able to hold your own in those situations? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I suppose... I was lucky because I grew up in the world of politics, partly because of my father. And so, you know, when you grow up in Washington, D.C., the senator, the the head of, you know, big organizations, intelligence agencies, they literally live in the neighborhood. And so you just see them as people. They're just somebody's dad. They're not authority figures. And so I didn't have the same kind of fear or sense of, um, of, of uncertainty around those folks as a lot of people. But... It's also true, and again, we're back to analysis is pretty clear on this. When women speak, and I do a lot of public speaking, audiences are typically much less forgiving. You have to get to your point much faster. I mean, how many of us have been in meetings where some guy who's in my age bracket just waffles on for 10 minutes before I never asked the question and that's permitted and if you stand up and say I have a question if you don't go straight to the point the guy at the front will go could you get to the point please and so yes we we do judge female speakers in a very different way including it's down to quite physical things like, for example, height still matters when it comes to authority. And so I may be an introvert, but I definitely benefit from the fact that I'm tall and, and I get to wear high heels. And so that, and it's, I think it's insane that this is true. I think it's absurd that I should carry more authority because I happen to be taller than the person I'm talking to. But we're humans and humans apparently still operate on this basis and people need to be aware of it. You say that imagination is probably the most underrated leadership tool, and I'm fascinated by that. We've we've discussed uh, quite a lot of different leadership areas, but how might we cultivate that atmosphere of creativity in the workplace? 
Oh, there's so many things to say on this. And in fact, um, you know, you and I were just at uh, a book festival and I got into quite a, um, quite a sort of confrontation with one of the panelists. Uh, and it was about Brexit. And basically all the panelists were, except me, were of the opinion that Brexit by definition means that the British economy is going to slide into the sea and sink. And, and that'll be the end of the country. And, and I said, but this is not the way reality works. I mean, we may not like Brexit, we may not want Brexit, but it does look like we're edging closer to this and we should be preparing for that. And so what could the world look like post-Brexit? Now that is an exercise in imagination. So one of the arguments was, well, there are no other uh, countries that are operating on a pure world trade organization basis and therefore that will never work. Well. If there are none, it doesn't matter. It's a bit like saying, will Britain have the Norwegian model or will it have somebody? No, it's going to have a new one. And we have to imagine what that is. We have to define the future. And that also means opening your mind to the possibility that you might not be correct that it's going to slide into the ocean. So, for example, I deal with a lot of investors the biggest investors in the world. They're all saying, actually, Britain's leading in artificial intelligence. It's absolutely at the forefront of biomedical research, super strong in the creative industries. Financial services, for a variety of reasons, cannot move to the continent wholesale. So they're actually putting much more money into the UK at the very moment that the British are so certain that there's just nothing left to invest in. And so this is the kind of imagination and creative thought process that's required. So as an example, I sat on the um, judging panel for the Queen's Enterprise Awards for the last couple of years. And this is like 700 businesses that um, sell everything. I mean, it's hotels. It's uh, people who make bridal gowns. It's people who make foodstuffs. It's small machinery and parts. It's, it's everything. And yet, if I raise that, I say, well, these businesses are diversifying. They're selling to Mexico now. They're selling to Africa. They're selling to Asia. Now, by the way, they could have done this before, Brexit, but it just didn't occur to them, or it was so easy to sell to Europe, they didn't bother. But anyway, they're doing it now, and you can see they're doing it now. Now, I think that's a good thing, that this economy is internationalizing, but it's also easy to, to make fun of, fun of that and say, oh, well, Mexico buying bridal gowns. But it's real business. Who cares what it is? It's an actual transaction. Um, there's a guy called Robert Tatosian who makes the uh, leather bracelets for men. And you go, well, leather bracelets, that's not a very big business. No, but jewelry is a very big global business. And he recently did a sale in Mexico, a country that he's never stepped foot in. And he said it was the biggest order I've ever had in my entire career in a country I've never stepped into. So this is imagination. We live in a world where you can create markets without even having to step into them. It's fascinating. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about technology and imagination. Uh, you, when you were researching the book, talked to a lot of leaders and asked them about this idea of whether or not they were overwhelmed by technology. And it's understandable because most people who get to leadership role are in their 50s, maybe in their 60s. They didn't grow up with any of this technology. And for most of their working lives, they've had other people to do a lot of 
basic technology for them. Um, and so they might be the, some of the least tech-savvy people in business. I know President Putin has said that um, artificial intelligence is the new frontier of global politics. And, you know, we know about Moore's law, the idea that, um, that AI and all of technology is expanding very quickly, doubling, in fact, which just leads to a huge turbocharged increase. Leaders clearly can't ignore this, but but also as individuals, they can't possibly keep up, can they? Well, so they, they can, but they again, they have to change how they think about it. Instead of technology just being a thing, like a software program or, or a phone, it's a way of conceptualizing about reality. And effectively what we're doing is by gathering data all the time, we're digitizing every person, everything, every movement, every motion, and every emotion. And all these data points are gathering in a kind of invisible holographic space. And I would say it's very like a crystal ball. And it literally lets you see reality with more clarity than we've ever seen it before. And part of your job as uh, frankly, as even a citizen, but also as a leader, is to conjure forth answers from this crystal ball. And I do think this is where we're going to solve cancer, for example. But it's also where you dramatically change the balance of power between companies and citizens and between states and citizens. And maybe that is not what we want, so we should think about that. But when you describe it in these more conceptual terms, it becomes easier for them to get a grip on, okay, why do I need to understand? Instead of it just being one little platform like Twitter, which I don't really get and don't have time for, it's part of your ability to see reality. And so if you want to have a grip on reality, then you have to get with the program. And so, you know, all these people, they say, well, I don't do really do technology. And I'm like, well, then technology is going to do you. I mean, literally. And if you can't get with it, people are going to be replacing you in a big hurry. And I do think there's a wave of the next generation that is more savvy about this. And today's leaders as always, are being moved out. And we're coming to a younger, more um, open-minded generation that knows how to use technology and also, again, combines tech and imagination to solve problems in totally new ways, where you end up with much more win-win scenarios. It's not so black and white, if somebody wins, then somebody has to lose. Why is that? Uh, again, if we're back to complex questions like Brexit, why is it that either the EU succeeds or Britain succeeds? We have like 170 countries in the world and many succeed simultaneously. They can succeed with different business models at the same time in totally different ways. And that's true for every kind of problem that we face. I want you to tell us a little bit about something that I find fascinating, SenseTime. It's a, it's yeah. a Chinese company that's using AI and facial recognition. And there is a thought that it could actually impact on the kind of leadership, particularly political leadership that we have. Definitely. So again, this is why Putin says AI is the new frontier of even geopolitics, not just politics. So what SenseTime does, it's the most valuable startup in the world. It's worth, I think, about six billion US dollars. Yeah, most people haven't even heard and of it. Nobody's heard of it. I, said, I hadn't heard of it until, yeah. I, until your book. And what it does is it allows, um, I mean, you do a lot of television. You take a television image of, say, a CEO comes on to your program, and they start to tell you about their company. Or a politician starts to talk about their, their strategy. SenseTime goes over that phase 
face and doesn't just recognize who it is. No, it recognizes all the microfacial movements that indicate when the person starts lying. And so, I mean, can you imagine when this comes to politics? I mean, this is just going to be incredible. You know, and, when, and it identifies Those leadership more. debates will be oh, seen yeah. in a whole new light, right? Totally. <laughs> I mean, imagine the, the augmented reality overlays on sports. That's going to come to faces. Um, and further than that, the, it also identifies your exact emotional state. Now, why is that important? Because now we know how to sell to you. If I can see your emotional reaction to things. So when you look at something on your phone and it has facial recognition, it's capturing your emotional reaction to the Instagram views that you look at, your emotional reaction to messaging. And then it begins to understand what kind of person are you? When is the right time to hit you with the sale of some particular thing? And this is um, something I think people haven't understood is in a facial recognition world, it changes governance, it changes advertising, it, and it, it really raises the question, why are we giving so much data away and not understanding the value of it? Mm. In a way, I wonder how much this is going to change with the next generation who understand that more. I mean, we at the moment are perhaps in an area where our discussions, our public discourse online is rather angry and very binary. Do you think that all of this is going to change as we become better used to using technology and understand more about what we are giving when we use it? Well, so far the answer's been no. This um, incredible improvement in technology has actually resulted in quite the opposite, more tribal, more tribal behaviours. Um, which is something that Marshall McLuhan talked about back in the 60s, that more technologically advanced we became, the more interconnected we became, the more people would retreat into tribal behaviors. And but we are seeing that very that. clearly at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm not sure it has to be inevitable. And as people get more connected, they also can't, they don't have to be more insular. This is back to what I was talking about before about the quantum superposition nature of things. You can become more interconnected and more insular simultaneously. Indeed, and so you're very connected, but actually you're having fewer conversations and you're only a you're able to find loads of people who all share exactly the same opinion as you, whereas perhaps when you lived in a village, you might have had many fewer people, but they had all different opinions. And again, that's back to diversity of thinking. So I make a huge effort to follow the the Twitter and Instagram feeds of people that I disagree with. Uh, I really try to spend time with people that have completely different understandings of this world than I do. The difficulty is when people refuse to converse, when they insist that if you don't agree, you're a liar, or if your fact that you present is a lie, then there's no place to begin. But one can completely uh, agree to disagree in order to have a conversation, and then you can begin to isolate, okay, where really are we finding the trouble? And then let's analyze that thing. And maybe somebody's opinion might change. They say that's the sign of intelligence, is the ability to change one's mind over time. Now, you actually founded a robotics company, so clearly you believe that there are benefits that exist from technology that uh, 
that, that really outweigh the fears that we have about it and perhaps how it's being used at the moment. So what are your hopes then for how technology can improve the future of leadership for all of us? Yeah, well, look, tech is always literally a double-edged sword. It, it genuinely cuts both ways. Massive improvements and big problems, no matter what technology you introduce. And I see that uh, in my world where I'm manufacturing uh, drones, aerial robotics, but very specifically for industry. So I am able to prevent mines from having these terrible dam breaks that kill people and pollute the environment because I'm able to use these aerial robotic tools to assess the volume and the shape of the basin and things that we've never been able to do before. So I see that that's a good thing. I can also see that the idea of drones that show up in your backyard from an uninvited person who's now spying on you, this is not a good thing. And it, it, it creates real trouble in communities and, and privacy problems. So it's both ways. I have more confidence than not that we will be able to harness the power of technology to do the good stuff. We will be able to uh, manage our toxic waste better and solve cancer. But I'm equally aware that we need to manage the public policy side, the balance of power that I described before between companies and customers and states and citizens. And this is part of negotiating a new social contract. And all of us have a part to play in this. And I think that's part of the leadership message. Leadership is no longer the thing that you expect that other person to do, that that person, that guy, that woman will sort this out. No, we are all part of the answer. And the leaders we choose reflect the future that we're that we want and that we're going to get and so for all the talk of i don't like our current leaders okay then we have to participate more in the choice and in the pressures on them and be part of it so it's no longer a thing someone else does each one of us exercises leadership pippa malcolm that was fascinating thank you so much for discussing that with thank me. you Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.